Good morning, everyone. This morning's reading is from Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 11. 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we now go to chapter 20, and again starting at verse 11. Chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Let's pray as we come to this part of the Bible. Heavenly Father, as we look at this part of your word, we are mindful that Christians have not always agreed over parts of this passage. Lord, we just ask that you would give us clear heads, that you would speak to us through your spirit, that we would see what we need to see and understand what we need to understand. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Can everyone hear me okay? Is that volume good enough, loud enough? Libby, can you? Yeah? Fantastic. Okay, well, many years ago, I was in this small group of undergraduate engineering students who got to go on a tour of the traffic control centre in the Sydney CBD in Oxford Street. Um, You might think that's not really a fun thing to do, but I reckon it is. Being able to see all those cameras and screens and all this sort of stuff, all controlling the day-to-day traffic through the CBD. And there are a lot of people in Sydney in the CBD. And there's times of day when traffic flow needs to be monitored or adjusted. They may need to manage bottlenecks or control how much traffic's going across the bridge at a certain point in time. Um, There's accidents, perhaps, an accident on the Harbour Bridge. How are you going to divert traffic? All these sorts of things. Special events. 
or even emergencies, trying to get a, a fire truck, a clear path through, contacting them and telling them this bit's better than that, all this sort of stuff. We had our tour of the traffic control centre in Oxford Street and it was amazing to be able to see behind the scenes, to see what you don't normally get to see as you're driving along the road. You don't know all this is happening behind there. No idea. But it's kind of a privileged position to be able to see, oh, that's what's going on. That's how they manage these situations. In that short tour, though, there was no way that any of us undergraduates could be expected to sit down and take the place of one of the controllers in that room. It would have been a disaster. You would have heard about it. We're just left with our first impressions, thinking that was amazing, amazing place. By now, I reckon you'd agree that the Book of Revelation is a little bit like a tour of the traffic control centre. Um, on the island of Patmos one Saturday afternoon, John was given this vision. He was taken behind the scenes. He was shown, actually, this is what's happening, but you don't normally see this. He was shown things that you don't normally have access to, and he was told to write this down and send it off to seven churches, and he did. And as he's done that, we have ended up with what is an apocalyptic vision. After reading Revelation uh, for a number of weeks, I'm sure you can see that um, we can hardly claim to be experts in these things. We're just left with first impressions, the big picture feel of this. We share John's first impressions in, in, of this amazing look behind the scenes, seeing everything's under control. Jesus is in there. He's got everything in his hands. And there's practical value to understanding what goes on behind the scenes. Knowing that stuff in this world is not an accident, there's practical value in that. We're given this graphic reminder that Jesus has dealt with sin and all its consequences. Satan's been defeated. Um, sin's been punished and will finally be judged. Those who endure in trusting in Jesus and bearing witness to him will enjoy eternity with Jesus. The look behind the scenes reassures us of all those things, and so that has practical value for our day-to-day -day lives. As we've read through Revelation, we've seen what we get is these repeated camera angles, different angles on the roads, different angles on this period of time between Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and then his return. The time, the overlap of the ages. This is a letter written to Christians living in this waiting room, if you like. Um, and as you look across Revelation, it's got layers and layers of different angles in on this period of time. And as you read through, you can see it's broken into scenes. And today, there's two scene changes, the start and the end of the passage. That's why we're looking at this section. So in 19 verse 11, there's another open door in heaven. We're coming into another scene in this long vision. In 21 verse 9, so beyond what we're looking at today, an angel invites John to come, another scene changer. And that takes you into the final scene in Revelation. When you look across this scene, um, there's seven mini-visions across these chapters. Um, seven mini-visions, very much like what we saw in a previous scene, back in chapters 11 to 15. There's a lot of similarities with these two scenes. Um, they both uh, are scenes which describe the spiritual battle behind the scenes. Um, but this scene shows us Christ's final victory and the final day of judgment. First things first, though, this is part of the Bible where Christians 
do differ, largely because what we've done is we've let the engineers get at the art. And they've got the symbols and they've taken things literally that you wouldn't necessarily take literally. Um, and for some reason, taken a particular interest in the 1,000 years that appears in here, particular interest in the millennium. So let me show you where it's first mentioned, Twen chapter 20, verse 2. So he, an angel that is, seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. There it is, the millennium. You see it again in the next verse, verse 3. Then further down in verse 4, there's another thousand years, or I would think the same thousand years. Um, there's those who have not worshipped the beast in chapter 4. The second half of the verse says, they came to life and reigned with Christ 1,000 years. And then in verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life till the 1,000 years were ended. And again in 20 verse 7, when the 1,000 years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. So at least five times in chapter 20 of Revelation, you have mention of the millennium, this 1,000-year period. It's the only place in the Bible that you'll find it, though. It's the only place in the Bible that you'll find mention of Satan being bound for a thousand years or saints or Christians reigning for a thousand years. And so I would encourage you when you come to a part of the Bible like this, which is unique, I would encourage you to read it in the light of the rest of Scripture and allow the rest of the Bible to shape how you read it. And given everything we know about Revelation to this point, I would encourage you to recognize that this is apocalyptic, this is symbolic type language. But what millennialist engineers have done is the opposite. So rather than read Revelation 20 in the light of the rest of the Bible, they recruit the rest of the Bible to support a view of Revelation 20. They flip it on its head. And rather than see this as um, apocalyptic genre with symbolism, they take things literally. I'm caricaturing a little bit, but in the end, that's the shape of it. So over the years, Christians have had three views of the millennium. The first view is the post-millennial view that Jesus will return after there's been a thousand-year period where the gospel has flourished, this reigning of the saints period of time. The pre-mill idea that Jesus will return from heaven and then we'll all reign with the saints for a thousand years and, and then something else happens. Or the amillennial view that there's not a literal thousand years described here. Rather, Christ reigns through the gospel from the cross to the new creation. I think you've probably worked out that would be where I sit and I think that's how I read Revelation, and I encourage you to um, talk to me about this if you disagree. For those of us that are uncomfortable with disagreeing with fellow Christians, though, some things to keep in mind. Two things. All three of those views accept that Jesus will return. <sighs> Huge relief. Um, and that Satan's defeated. The second thing is Christians who hold each of these views will encourage you to be ready by putting your faith in Jesus. So if you're uncomfortable with disagreeing with Christians, hang on to those things. But there's, in the first two views, the pre and post view, there's difficulties that lead you to be um, paying a lot of attention to signs and times and time frames, whereas the rest of the New Testament says you won't know when Jesus will return. Jesus says only the Father knows. He himself doesn't know when he's returning. And so the post and the pre meal play around in an area where it does get tricky and dangerous, I think. The AA millennial position um, would appear to fit best with what we have in front of us, I would say. Um, this is a vision 
which John's recorded and recorded in apocalyptic genre. So the thousand years should be treated as part of the vision, part of the symbolism in this vision. If you're going to take everything literally, then um, the book of life would be a literal book. I don't know, but I reckon they might even have computers in heaven by now. And the, the saints would be riding around on horses, white horses wearing white. So you better think about which car you're driving. You know, you, if you can take things overly literally, you get yourself tangled in weird knots, strange things. So I think let's acknowledge this is a genre of scripture that's apocalyptic. It's got a lot of symbolism. This is another camera angle, I would say, of the overlap of the ages. It's like pulling back the curtain and seeing what's happening while we wait for Jesus to return and what will happen when he returns. So let's have a bit of a closer look at the seven mini-scenes. So the mini-visions challenge and reassure us as Christians to keep serving King Jesus, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. The first little mini-vision starts in chapter 19, verse 11, and runs through to verse 16. And it's this vision of Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So 11, 19 verse 11 says, I saw, this is a mini vision, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. The minute you see the white horse and its rider, you think, actually, we've seen this before back in chapter 6. However, the white horse and rider in chapter 6 are very different. That rider and horse came out of the scroll that the lamb opened. It's kind of like... A, a, um, a rider and a horse under a great deal of control with the lamb controlling. This is not the picture you get here. This is a, a rider who is powerful. This is a picture of Jesus. All the language kind of echoes things we've already heard describing Jesus among the lampstands, describing the lamb who was slain. Um, the description of the rider, it echoes that kind of language we've already seen through Revelation. So he's, verse 11, he's faithful and true. Verse 12, he has eyes like blazing fire. Verse 13, he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, making you think of the lamb, perhaps. Um, the writer has the name, the word of God in verse 13, like the start of John's gospel. Um, he has a double-edged sword in his mouth. We've seen that before, too. And if you look at 19, verse 15, it says, Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. It's like he's going to judge with his word. The nations will, will be judged by his word. Then there's a quote from Psalm 2, which again we've seen already. 15, second half of the verse, he will rule them with an iron scepter. It's Psalm 2 being recruited into Revelation, and we've already seen that. And then it goes on, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So this rider and his horse... This writer is a judge, a ruler. Um, he's got more than one name. So in verse 15, his, his name's written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is a mini vision within the larger scene, a mini vision, a symbolic representation of Jesus, the King and the judge. It's a description of Jesus as he is even now. It doesn't say he'll be like this in the future. He's like it now. There's a reference to judging in the future, ruling, but this is a description of him even now. Then the second mini vision, it's a short one in verses 17 to 18. It's an invitation to witness what we go on to read, basically, but it's an invitation in the form of an invite to a horrible banquet. So it's quite, so verse 17, I'll just read it. And I saw, so the next mini vision, I saw an angel standing in the, in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and the mighty and 
and the mighty, of horses and their riders, the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. It's not a very nice couple of verses to read. By now, though, on our way through Revelation, you'll know there's been various um, images of judgment, images that don't really sit very comfortably with us. And as I think about it, I can't help wondering if, you know, times and society and expectations have changed and whether things might have been different when this was originally written down by John. Maybe it was less confronting back then. I'm not sure. I've also been wondering what it would be like on the day of actual judgment when the wickedness of ignoring God will be seen for what it really is and whether um, judgment on that day might seem different to us. But if you can put our uncomfortableness to one side, what you see happening here in verse 18 is judgment. And it's judgment that comes on people from all levels. It starts with the rulers, but it ends with great and small. And it would make sense for the king of kings you've just seen in the previous mini-vision to be the one who um, brings this judgment, who's hosting this banquet, if you like. Then you have the third little mini-vision from verse 19 of chapter 19. Then I saw, another mini-vision, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. This has echoes, doesn't it, of what we've already seen in Revelation, this, this kind of last big battle. You might have, uh, you remember it from back in chapter 16, all of the kings of the earth gathered together on what, on, at this place of Armageddon as that bowl of wrath was poured out. But once again, we know the outcome, just like we did in the last camera angle. We still know the outcome. So verse 20, but the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet who performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So the beast and the false prophet, again, we've met them in Revelation already. Again, they're dealt with, they're judged in a similar fashion to what you saw back in chapter 14, this, this fiery lake of sulfur. It's a picture of judgment. Again, I don't think you need to um, say that there will literally be a, fire, a fiery lake of sulfur on judgment day. It's an image. It's apocalyptic images. And then uh, verse 21 ties together visions one and two as well. So verse 21, the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorge themselves on the flesh. So the rider on the horse, this birds in the air eating this sort of mini visions one and two wrapped into this. Um, but you see in verse 21, the rest, all of these who were gathered against the rider on the horse, they're all judged in this fashion. So presumably the rest are all that followed after the beast and the false prophet, um, all who were gathered in chapter 19, verse 19. And then you come to the fourth little mini vision. And in this little mini vision... This is where it starts getting interesting. Satan is restrained until the last judgment. And I should point out that this mini-vision, it can't follow sequentially with the first three. Um, 19 verse 19, all, the, all of God's enemies were gathered, but here in, ahead in 19 verse 21, they, 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 they're gathered and judged again. Like, you've got two gatherings, the amassing of people against the writer. Is, surely that's not... Too, when they're finally dealt with in that, in that sulfury, burning mess. So I wouldn't be wanting to read these as sequential. I think this is like another camera angle. And we're getting used to the way that Revelation does this. Um, this time it's fire from heaven that will devour them. If you look ahead in chapter 20, verse 10, all these ones gathered against um, 
against Jesus. And so I think it's a picture more like this. So this fourth mini-vision, though, doesn't quite give you the final judgment that comes in the next mini-vision. So it's sort of an overlap, incomplete. Um, Let me read from verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 1, rather. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient snake, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. And there's your first mention of this thousand-year millennium, this period of time. If you stand back at and look at the bigger picture here, there are echoes of a previous scene in Revelation the scene where John saw the seven sights in chapter 11 through to 15. Back there, we met all these characters. We met in chapter 13, the beast. We met the false prophet. In chapter 12, in that previous scene, we met Satan represented as a dragon. And there's echoes of that here in chapter 20, verse 2. You remember the scene back in chapter 12, there was a woman about to give birth, Israel about to give birth, and the dragon waiting to snatch away the child, but the child was snatched away before the dragon could get at it. Back in chapter 12, there's a voice from heaven that declares that the saints or the Christians have triumphed over the dragon by the blood of the lamb. He's beaten. But the dragon or Satan was hurled down to earth for a short time. And the dragon, what he does is continues to pursue the woman and at every turn he's foiled, at every turn frustrated. It's like a 3D picture of a frustrated Satan unable to do what he wants to do. It's like Satan's restrained, like you're seeing here. Again, um, back in that previous scene, his time is running out. And I said when we looked through that chapter, it's like you know having a flathead on the end of your fishing line on the ground. It's only got a limited amount of time to flip around. So I hope you can see the similarities between these scenes because they are camera angles on the same events. In chapter 20, the dragon or Satan is there once again, Again, he's thwarted in his attempts. He's restrained. This scene, um, it's expressed as being locked up so that he can't deceive the nations. Then you have the fifth mini-vision. While Satan is restrained, we have the saints beginning to reign. In fact, it's a picture, it could be more like um, while Satan is preventing, um, prevented from stopping the nations or the Gentiles from hearing the gospel. You could read it that way. The Christians are proclaiming Jesus in this time. Let's have a look at it. So verse 4 picks up, I saw, so another mini vision. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And you can take out the full stop, it doesn't need to be there. I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They'd not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. This is a little bit tricky, isn't it? I think what you've got is a description of a group of Christians, a description of the church. Um, Among the church are some who have died professing Jesus, but the whole church are a group of people who've not signed up to the beast. They're trusting in Jesus. They're they're living for him. 
Um, this corporate group of Christians, they're born again. That kind of language from John chapter 3, born again. As you become a Christian, you experience new life, the first resurrection. Um, the New Testament leads us to expect that everyone will rise for judgment. I think that's the bit in brackets in verse 5. So it goes on in verse 6, Blessed are the holy and those who have shared in the first resurrection. I think it's saying blessed are all Christians. The second death has no power over them. We know that. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. This idea of Christians reigning or having thrones back in verse 4, the idea of Christians ruling or reigning with Jesus, it's not unfamiliar in the New Testament. You get glimpses of it, say, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6 or in Hebrews chapter 2, you'll see it. But we've already seen this kind of language. It's already an experience we're a part of. If you look back at chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 6, while John is still kind of doing his preliminaries, addressing this letter before he goes into vision mode, in 1 verse 6 he says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, verse 6, and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and Father. We're already a kingdom of priests. You become a Christian, you're a part of this kingdom of priests, serving God, serving Jesus. And so in this vision, there's that kind of language happening. Um, The next part of this fifth mini-vision pulls together, um, kind of completes the picture a little. So verse 7, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from prison. Remember, he was left in the end of the previous mini-vision, locked up. Then he's released. He'll go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. That kind of language has echoes of Ezekiel, chapter, I think it's 38 in the background, or 28 rather, in the background. Um, In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Here's God's enemies, another vision of them um, amassed around, but this time fire from heaven. And verse 11, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, that same place where the beast and the false prophet are already there. um, That's what it says. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. We've been shown this final battle more than once. It's already here in chapter 19 in this same scene, but it was also in the form of the destruction of Babylon in the previous scene in chapters 17 to 19. And when the bowls of wrath are poured out, I already said back in chapters 15 and 16, there's this Armageddon, this amassing of people against God, the kings of the earth. Um, And this time you you combine into this echoes of Ezekiel chapter 28, yet another angle camera angle on God's judgment and then we have the next mini vision verse 11 then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them and I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne the books were opened another book was opened which was the book of life the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books this is a picture of justice Every wrong and every injustice, God knows about it. It's, it's recorded in the books. He's got the, the records. There's no fudging here. Everything will be sorted. It's a picture of appropriate judgment. But if your name happens to be written in the book of life, well, sentence not, is not passed on you because of the blood of the lamb in your place. And then the final mini vision picks up um, the look at the new heaven and the new earth, and I reckon let's save that for next week because it just keeps going. 
Um, I'm not sure why Christians over the years have become obsessed with the millennium, locked in on this thousand-year number. Yeah, Revelation 20 does talk about it, but it's part of this vision with these mini-visions. It's part of an apocalyptic symbolism. So why latch on to a thousand years any more than latching on to the white horse and the white rider? If you go back to 19 verse 14, all this, everyone else gathers around this white horse and rider on their white horses and in their white or their well, fine linen, it says. So maybe we should be you know, getting those things organised, our white horses and our fine linen, if we're worried about a thousand years taking these things literally. I reckon, no, let's not get distracted by 1,000. It's a symbolic number. It's a period of time. This is a vision. Revelation 19, verse 11 through to 21, verse 8, is a vision which John recorded for us. It takes us behind the scenes, shows us things we don't normally get to see, describes stuff that we don't normally know about. While we wait for Jesus to return, we have already begun new life. Our sin is dealt with through Jesus' death on the cross. We've already begun to reign with Jesus. We proclaim the truth of the gospel to anyone who would hear. And God's word just keeps going out. Um, When anyone puts their trust in Jesus, they're washed in the blood of the lamb. They join the kingdom of priests bearing witness to Jesus. And if you could pull back the curtain, if you could pull back the curtain and look at what's happening behind, you would see that we're being led by Jesus on a white horse. You would see the rider on the horse. You would see Satan restrained while the gospel goes out. You would see what's to come, this final day of judgment when everything will be sorted. And what will matter on that day is that your name's written in that book of life. So as we pull the curtains closed again and get on with another week of living for Jesus, we can have confidence that Jesus is in control. We know he's got everything in control and I think that's what we're meant to gain from understanding the book of Revelation. So let's pray that that would be us that would be keep that would keep persevering let's pray heavenly father we thank you that we know that you love us because you sent your son to die for us lord thank we thank you that we know that jesus death on the cross is complete it deals with sin and death finally lord we just ask that you would help us to trust in jesus and keep living for him we pray that we would be making the most of the time that you've given us between now and when jesus returns making the most of that time to proclaim Jesus. We pray that we would see more people come to know you and put their trust in him. And we pray in his name. Amen.